welcome to State Lobbying Heroes Podcast, a podcast where we delve into the careers and personal life stories of some of the best and the brightest state government relations experts. I'm your host, Deepak, CEO of Legistracker. Paul Mott, a resident of North Carolina, is a grassroots specialist from North Carolina Electric Cooperatives. He received a bachelor's in political science from NC State. Paul had a variety of internships. It included voter registration, campaign internships, internship with the governor, and as a legislative assistant at the assembly. How did he earn these internships, and what was his experience like? We learn all about it from Paul in this next episode. Hey, Paul. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really do appreciate it. Absolutely, Deepak. Thanks for thinking of me and, and having me on. My pleasure. So this podcast is um, primarily targeting students uh, who's in, who are interested in getting into lobbying. So your career was particularly interesting to me because you had a good exposure to being getting into a lot of internships before you actually started being into lobbying. So let's start there. When did you actually, you did get bachelor's in political science, am I right? Correct. Absolutely. From NC State. Okay. And how did you get into it? I mean, did you, were you interested in political science before, like for that, or, or did you just want to try it out? Going into college, I'd always been interested in, in politics and, you know, following the news and what was going on around the world. But I wasn't 100% sure that's the path I wanted to take. And going to state, they had a great first-year program for people who were undecided about what their career path was going to be. And in that first year, I was lucky to have a great RA resident advisor who went on to work in politics himself, who offered me a chance to campaign for a state house member, a former representative, Tom Murray. Through that, it was, at the time, it was fairly simple, just canvassing neighborhoods on weekends, asking people to, to vote for Tom. And that was a simple activity, but uh, it was a lot of hard work, but it kind of showed me what was possible and, and how easy it was to get into that world. And then through, through hard work and looking for good opportunities, you know, you can make the most of it for yourself. So when you were taking this political science major, what kind of courses, looking back, did it help you right now that you're in the lobbying world? Absolutely. So again, going back to just starting out right away with freshman year, there was an intro to political science course I took, which just dealt with the very basic concepts of, of how does government work? How do things get done? And that found interesting enough to carry forward and to pursue that political science degree. And later on, I took some great classes. I was lucky to have great professors at state, people like Professor Tony Solari, uh, Andrew Taylor, who went just beyond the, the basic concepts in the textbook and really talked about the application. And more discussions in those classes that were the most helpful and learning how government could work for various groups of people and how it was a tool to be used and uh, not just something to passively watch. And while you were at Perth doing the bachelor's degree, you were also an intern, am I right? Yeah, that's correct. So after starting out with just uh, basic campaign volunteering, I kind of got the taste for it and wanted to look for more in-depth opportunities. And so I had a various uh, variety of, of internships. I worked on the governor's campaign back in 2012. I also worked in voter registration, which was a nonpartisan thing. Some of the other campaigns were partisan. This was just, you know, in an election year trying to get NC State students to sign up to vote. 
And so throughout everything, I've, I've always thought it's important to be on party lines. And, and even if anybody leans one way or the other, Democrat, Republican, what have you, with, and I believe most people do have some kind of leaning, it's important to look beyond that and, and look where the commonalities are, because I think that's where, where progress gets made. I learned a lot when I interned for the governor, had some great bosses there. And it was it was hard work, and that's really where the opportunities come, and that's how you, know, you get the the good opportunities. You get lucky, so to speak, is by putting in that those hours, that sweat equity, analyzing speeches, transcribing things, doing a lot of research on different priorities, and that was some great opportunities to really get a, a front seat view to how that campaign was being run and how I could have a, a small impact on it. If these internships did you like apply for them or did you were you like someone else came and approached you so it's uh for some of them for example i also interned at the general assembly and that was an application i, I submitted just like plenty of other political science and, and other majors at state when they wanted to work at the general assembly for that governor's internship it was actually a little bit more of a unique situation and, and it speaks back to trying to work as hard as you can, scrabble as hard as you can for any opportunity. And that's what creates those moments of luck. I was the chair of the College Republicans at State. I noticed that the governor was looking for opportunities to, to campaign at different campuses and, and talk to students about what was important to them in that election. And so I responded to the campaign manager asking, telling them who I was, who I represented, and saying, we'd love to have the governor come out and uh, shoot a short video. And so they did that. And in the process of that, I got talking to the campaign manager. They let me know, we have an internship opening if you're interested. You know, it was unpaid, like a lot of early low-level uh, political internships are. But it goes back to, you know, if you want the opportunity, if you want to get to something down the line, take making that sacrifice early on. You know, it was a busy summer, but I, I wouldn't trade it for, for anything, learning the lessons I did. So can you explain maybe one or two takeaways which you had for looking back at your NC State experience and the internships? What are the one or two things which you took away from that? Absolutely. So the best thing I always like to talk about when people ask about my, my experience at NC State getting a political science degree is it was it was about what I learned in the classroom. And like I said, I had great professors and learned a lot about the, the political theory and the, the deeper thinking behind uh, a lot of political concepts. But at the same time, it was equally as important and state emphasized the importance of real world experience. Uh, one of my best experiences there was a class where I got to use one of my internships for class credit. And that was, I think, a huge tool that NC State signaling through that, that it's not just about what you learn in the classroom and what papers you write, but what you can actually go out into the world and get accomplished. And so that, I think, is to me, the most important is not just relying on what you learn in the book, what you can actually go out into the world and learn and make connections. And that, I think, is what is going to get you the furthest. So after you graduated, when was this? Uh, 2013. Okay. So 2013, you graduated. And then the very first job you took was a grassroots coordinator. Is that right? So it was, again, a little bit of a unique situation. I, when I graduated, I was still interning at the General Assembly for Representative Avila. She was a representative from Wake County. And then after that, I got on as a legislative assistant for uh, Representative Younce, who had just been appointed. It, the timing worked out well. But at the same time, I also had the chance to work as that grassroots coordinator you mentioned for a city council campaign for Wayne Mayorano, who was a former uh, councilman for uh, Raleigh City Council. 
in the uh, northern part of the city. And that was, it, it took what I had learned in college, being out and about and campaigning and learning everything I could. And it allowed me to, to apply it to a real campaign. And it was city council, so it was a little different than the state races I'd worked on before, but it was a lot of similarities existed there. We used similar campaign software, similar canvassing process, similar process of getting out volunteers, making sure that they're available to, to make phone calls on behalf of the candidate to, to be there on election day to canvass at polling sites. And so that was uh, another incredible opportunity that I was afforded because of all, all that previous work in college and because of connections I'd made. So that was really the first chance I got out to get out into the world and do something partly on my own that, that I could be proud of. So explain it to me, like, since I'm a layman here, can you tell me, like, once you applied for the General Assembly internship, right? I mean, is, there like a, is it like, like a vetting process which happens, like, once the applications come in, how do they screen up, screen candidates? Absolutely. So it's that early part of the process is similar to, to most jobs. It's they look at your resume. Uh, you put references in there, and most of those references are contacted. But I think, and I think this applies to a lot of other jobs too, I think it goes deeper than just submitting that resume and hoping for the best. I remember once I submitted it, I went to the legislature and looked to see who needed an intern for that period, and then went around to different offices and introduced myself and just made myself available. Because the one thing I realized uh, just talking to friends at State at the time who were also applying is how many people were putting their name in the pot. And, and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't left by the wayside when everybody was selected. So I, you know, made those connections, uh, talked to people and made sure that when each legislator was choosing their intern, I was one of the names they, they considered. Well, that, that's a key insight you're giving. So after applying as well, what you would suggest is that you still actively go out to the assembly and then talk to as many people as you can. So that way they can have a name associated with the application. Is that what it is? Absolutely. Your face. Absolutely. And I goes to that saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. One of my things is, especially early on, I always wondered, well, do I really want to bother them again? You know, I already submitted my application or I've already called them. Do I really need to bother them again? I think the philosophy you have to have is absolutely. I'm going after what I want this job, I'm qualified for it, whoever you may be, whatever job you're applying for, and you're showing your worth by tenaciously going after it. And, and I don't think there's anything to regret or second, second guess yourself for. Just make sure that you're the first name they think of when they're looking at that job. Now, can you explain maybe what is it that you guys typically do as when you said you were the grassroots coordinator at the corner store solutions, right? So when you say canvassing and everything, can you maybe explain it to me like a layman? What is it that you guys do? Absolutely. So, so backing up 10,000 foot view, we looked at, we have a candidate who's running for election and you have this district of voters who will hopefully vote him in to office. And so you want to drill down a little bit deeper than that. It's not just hopefully you talk to enough people and they are in 50% plus one of them vote for you. You want to be a little bit more methodical about it. So we looked at the precinct data from past elections, and we looked at the, the partisan breakdown, the demographic breakdown, and we looked at who was most likely to vote for our candidate. And then we wanted to go after them. The easiest candidates for voting for our candidate were these people. And so we drew out walking maps, canvassing maps, the different neighborhoods in that district. And so on any Saturday or after work on a weekday, we would go with the candidate in most cases and just go door to door. 
and we would of course know all the rules about what we could and couldn't do in some neighborhoods we had to avoid some apartments we had to avoid but sticking to the law and how the right way to do it was we went out and talked to voters at their homes and it's a non-confrontational thing but just introducing ourselves myself on behalf of the candidate the candidate introducing themselves directly and getting to talk to them and what i really appreciated from that and i know that it's not the same for all races but the city council candidate i was working for they really wanted to hear from the voters and it wasn't just trying to push his views down their throat it was talk to me about what's important to you and then i'll see what i can do to get that done once i'm elected and i think that goes furthest to getting somebody to, to believe you if you come across as trustworthy if you want to hear more about what the voters say and then what you have to say to them then i think that builds up a level of trust that's going to carry you across election day into that office you're running for and so that was a big part of what we did early on in the election cycle. What we also did closer to election day is we would do a similar thing, but via phone. Again, we would look at the list of eligible voters and we would look at who has voted similar in the past. And then we would call them for eight o'clock most nights. So we wouldn't bother anybody too late in the night, but we would talk to them and just, again, introduce ourselves, tell them who we were and why this candidate was the best one. And we got good response from that. It's, uh, it was also a good experience, you know, kind of helped build a little thick skin because like with anything, uh, even outside of politics, if you're talking to strangers on the phone, you're going to get all sorts of responses. And so it really helped to, uh, to build up a thick skin. And it, I noticed it was a bit different on the phone versus in person. In person, most people were more likely to be friendly. And even if they weren't buying what you were selling, they would at least hear you out. But on the phone, I think that level of anonymity gives them a little bit more of a, a shield to, to put different things out there that maybe not the nicest. But again, it was a good experience. And then on election day, I volunteered or I organized volunteers to go to the polls in the precincts that were most likely to go towards our candidate, the ones that were kind of on the fence, but leaning our way to give that extra push at the 11th hour to make sure we were able to get across the finish line. And it was a similar thing, stood far away from the doors to the precinct voting location, but we talked to voters as they were going in to vote and just asked them who they were going to vote for. And if they were undecided, which many were, we just talked to them about our candidate. And that was a real big asset because usually if it, the last name you hear, if you're unsure about a race, is the one you're going to vote for, as long as they don't give you a reason not to. And so through those three main activities, we were able to, to get a victory in that election. So I'd say those were the, the main activities during that, during that job. So it takes a lot of patience, I would say, right? What is the one skill which you learned from all of that? I, I think you, you nailed it right there, Deepak, is, is patient. No matter what you're, you're pushing or what candidate you're, you're campaigning for or what concept you're lobbying for, being able to, to humble yourself in any interaction with somebody else and realize I'm pushing for X, Y, or Z, they also might be pushing for something. So let me hear them out, see where they're coming from and see where we can meet in the middle. And, and you do have to gain your ground. It's that thick skin I mentioned before, but you pair that with patience. And I think you get a lot further when people realize that you're not trying to ram something home, that you're able to listen to them and, and meet in the middle. So moving on, then you were a legislative assistant at the NCGA? Was that after? after? Okay, so can you just talk us, how did you get that, get that position and then you, what is it that you were doing? So that was, again, a little bit of luck and a little bit of just good timing. That legislator, uh, Representative Younce from Davidson County, was appointed after another legislator was appointed to a commission. And so I saw that on Twitter, that there was a new legislator coming. 
And so I thought, well, this legislator is going to need a legislative assistant. And I was currently interning at the General Assembly. So I messaged Representative Younts on Twitter saying, so-and-so, here's my resume. If you're looking for a legislative assistant, I'd love to sit down and talk with you when you come to Raleigh. And it ended up working out. And so I think it was a combination of being able to prove the good work I'd done previously, plus just good timing and a little bit of luck. So is this like a common theme that they, that the new legislators get announced somewhere, like in Twitter or, or any other place? That How did you come to know that? So it, it really depends. And, and most, 99% of the, the legislators at, in, at the General Assembly, they win through election and then they're coming to Raleigh the following January. But this was a little bit of a unique situation where the current legislator was appointed to a commission, uh, the Utilities Commission, and, and then there was a vacancy. And so that vacancy can't sit empty for the remainder of the term. They have to put someone else in there to represent that district. And so... Like I said, it was a little bit of luck that that vacancy was available at the time, and then that legislator needed somebody to, to help in the office. And so I just jumped on it as soon as I could. But I will say that absolutely, like you mentioned, stuff being posted on Twitter, whether it is Twitter or Facebook or just through the grapevine, talking to friends and building up that, that network in Raleigh or wherever you're working is really important because that's how you hear about things. And, and going back to applying, you can apply like anybody else, submit your application and hope for the best. Or you can work at building connections who know the person that's hiring and, and really work the, the angle that way. And I think that really does pay dividends for whoever you are. As long as you have the hard work and the expertise to back it up, that, that'll get you a lot farther. So after, oh yeah, just talk us through what were the tasks you were doing at the, as the legislative assistant. Absolutely. So working at the legislature, um, you wear many different hats. Constituent services is a, is a big part of it, especially working for a first-term legislator. They're likely not chairing the, the key committees yet in their career. So constituent services is kind of that bedrock of any legislator's work. Uh, you want to make sure that the people in your district are being served well. And so there's a whole host of issues that they call into the office or email into the office asking for help with. We got anything from people at different prisons asking for different assignments, people asking for help with veterans issues, people asking for help with health care, retirees who weren't able to get the benefits they, they should have. But really just helping connect the dots between a constituent back home who needs something and us in Raleigh who have some of the connections with the different state agencies being able to put them in contact with the right people to get resolution to whatever issue they had. That was, that was a big part of it. Also, on the legislative side of things, as sessions going on, following the different bills that your, your boss, your representative is, is interested in. Before they go into a committee meeting or go into session, briefing them on what's going to be on the calendar for that day, letting them know, here's X, Y, Z, your bill. This is what it contains and vote, vote accordingly. So it was really a good, another good lesson in my, uh, multitasking and making sure that you didn't leave anything on the burner to burn while keeping everything cooking. So did you, was that also involving you to read the bills yourself or was it like Absolutely. more, okay, or was it like someone else coming and then like, like lobbyists or someone else coming and talking to you about it? So I'd say it's a little bit of a combination. It was absolutely reading the bills yourself, just skimming through them, making sure that you knew what the bill would do. And it really did teach attention to detail because some bills might be a page or two long and really easy to process and figure out what it would do. But there's some other bills that have a bunch of different moving parts and they could be 50, 60, 70 pages long. 
And so it really teaches you to keep a keen eye on every part of the bill so that you don't let anything slide. And then the other piece of it, you're, you're right on the money. You do rely on, on outside help to make sure you don't miss anything. Uh, you have different lobbyists who come in, and, and I think that's a, one of the best parts of the lobbyist-legislator relationship is it's not this sleazy relationship that's sometimes portrayed in the media, but it's really an informational friendship. Lobbyists for a certain association, for example, might come in on one of their bills that affects them and their members. And so you being a legislative office might not know too much about that bill yet. So they'll tell you a little bit about it, and then you then have the freedom to look it up independently and make sure that what they're telling you is the truth. But I think for the most part, most of the lobbyists you'll meet at the legislature are telling the truth because that is word of their bond. And without that, not going to have that much of a career. And so it really was helpful to have them come in and help make sure that you weren't letting any bills still die. And we were also very reliant on the divisions at the legislature, bill drafting, uh, the program evaluation department for sending summaries of the bills. So once it was filed, they would type up kind of the, the high level analysis of the bill. And that would help too just on the fly when you're analyzing a bunch of different bills and sessions coming up, being able to pull those summaries and tell your boss what's going on in a short amount of time. Before moving on to the next phase of your career, what is that one takeaway you got from your experience as a legislative assistant, which you felt this is something which was very valuable or is currently valuable to you in your current position? Absolutely. I would say fairness was one of the big things I learned. I mentioned wearing many hats and having many different things happening every day. It's, it, it can be easy to fall into the trap of, all right, my boss is following these five bills, for example. These are what I'm going to focus on. Or my boss has a pet project that they want me to focus on, so I'm going to focus on that. But it really has to be bigger than that. And most successful legislative assistants, research assistants, anybody who works at the General Assembly is good at this, at keeping a wide eye to anybody who's asking their office for help. Because at the same time that you're tracking bills for your boss, there could be somebody back home. For example, I had a, an elderly lady call the office back when I was working there asking for a different assignment for their son who was in prison a little further away in another part of the state. And so being able to take the time and connect her with somebody from that state department and make sure that she got the help she needed, and as long as it was going through the proper channels, is really something that was very rewarding. And it wasn't something that was really top of the list at the beginning of the day, but it comes up and you had to react to it and make sure that you were giving everybody called into the office their fair share of time and, and attention. Then you were a political consultant at the Cornerstone Solutions. Can you talk us through how did you get that and what was that job about? Absolutely. So that was actually, even though it was through Cornerstone, it was a contract job with the State Association for the NC Realtors. And that was an extremely rewarding opportunity. I was made aware of it because Cornerstone was also who was working on that city council campaign that I worked on right out of college. And so they let me know about this new opportunity and, and I took it. It seemed like a great, great next step. And what it was, was the realtors were looking at a grassroots program to engage more homeowners across the state, not just homeowners, but people who were looking at buying in the next few years and really making sure that the fairness applies, you know, to anybody who owns a host and who owns a home in the state. And it was a new program at the time. And so myself and a few others made up a team of people who came from Republican backgrounds, people who came from Democrat backgrounds. We all worked together for, for this common goal of advancing homeownership priorities at the legislature. 
And it was, again, extremely rewarding to, to build something from the ground up. Previous to this, it was working on already established, working at the General Assembly, working for an already established campaign. But being able to start off at the same level and, and really see it grow to what is now a pretty robust uh, statewide program was extremely valuable. And I learned a lot from the people I worked with and people I worked for. That's great. And is that, and that's a good segue into the next position, which is the Shared Government Affairs Directorate, NCE Association of Realtors. Is that Absolutely. how you ended up going into that? Absolutely. So after about a year and a half of working in this contract position for the Homeowners Alliance, they brought me on in-house with the NC Realtors. And shortly after that, I added added another hat to the repertoire as a shared government affairs director for the Realtors Association down in Moore County. And that was another new opportunity. It was more on the local government level. And what, what it was, was working with the Realtors Association down in Moore County, that's Southern Pines, Pinehurst, that area. And making sure that the city and county level decisions being made weren't negatively impacting homeowners and the, uh, the real estate market down there. And it was uh, a valuable experience to go to city council meetings and listen to the nitty gritty of how those decisions were made. And again, it was kind of a, I was in on the ground level doing it and learning as I went, learning from the realtors I was working with, learning from the people in the office back in Raleigh that I was working for. And I really got to, to see how things were done at that local level in Moore County and also got to add some realtor input to those decisions made by those county commissioners and the city councilmen. So, so talk us through a little bit about your day-to-day -day activity when you were the shared government's affairs director. Let's say you walked into the office. What did you do? Absolutely. So it was a little different. I split my time between that and the Homeowners Alliance part of, of my job at the time. And so Monday, I might be in the Raleigh office. Tuesday, I might leave in the morning and drive down to uh, Moore County and, and immediately start evaluating what was on the calendar that week for, say, the city council in, uh, in Pinehurst or Southern Pines or Aberdeen. And then if there was anything concerning, uh, making sure the realtors at that office were aware of it and then deciding what our decision would be and what our course of action was and then carrying that out, speaking in front of the city council and, and the county commission on behalf of those realtors. There were also several priorities they had that we wanted to make sure we carried out and several things they were doing in the community that we wanted to make sure went, went forward without a hitch. And so it was uh, various duties, but it all came together to make sure that the realtors and the homeowners in Moore County were well represented and that they weren't forgotten in any decision. So before we move on to your current position, what is it that you learned from being government affairs director? and also a political consultant. Absolutely. I'd say this was the, the first big opportunity I had to see how the whole of government worked from the state level. We also had federal issues at the realtors that would come up and we'd make visits to DC to, to lobby and advocate on behalf of those issues and all the way down to the local level. And so it really, it gave me an appreciation of the breadth of what we can do for whoever we represent in whatever job we have. And it really helped me become a better multitasker. I mentioned before having other duties and other jobs, but this was really, it, it put that to the test and it made me grow as a, as a employee there. And I think it put me in good position for where I am now, being able to, to work at the legislature, to work with the people we serve at the co-op. So yeah, tell us like, how did you end up the position at the NC Electric Cooperatives? Absolutely. So I found out about the opportunity uh, through a colleague 
and I've interviewed for it and applied for it and, and followed up and, uh, and was what, lucky to... Sorry, what was the position you applied for? So I applied for the grassroots specialist at the NC Electric Cooperatives, our okay. statewide office here in Raleigh. And it was similar to what I was doing with the realtors, but a little different, obviously different subject, a different policy concentration, but very much grassroots centered. And then after working at the co-ops for about a year and a half, two years, they brought me on as a a junior lobbyist as well to Jay Rouse, our our main lobbyist uh, down at the legislature. And that was another great opportunity to learn from him. And he's he's been lobbying for for years and years for for different groups and for the co-ops for quite a while as well. And to learn what really works when you're working with the legislator on an issue and learn what get a bill across the finish line or how to, on the other side, stop a bill when it's not uh, beneficial to you and the people you serve. And in our case, the, the best thing about my job is the people we serve is our co-op members uh, from across the state, two and a half million people who are just you and me. Obviously, they, they draw power from the co-op and, and we try to serve them as best as possible. Because we're a cooperative instead of uh, a for-profit company, it really brings that concentration on the member home. And it really is one of our core values to make sure that we are bringing as much value back to that member at the end of the power line as we can every year. So yeah, tell, walk me through what what is it? What does it does exactly NC Electric Cooperatives do? Absolutely. So use a comparison. Talking to anybody who, when I came on with the Electric Co-op, I had to do a little bit of research about who they were and, and what what they did. I was incredibly impressed with it. They were founded back during the Great Depression when you had farmers mainly across the country who were not being served by the power providers of the time because they were more out of the cities and it was more expensive to bring them power. So the farmers eventually banded together and said, well, we're going to take it upon ourselves to bring power out to to our homes and our communities. And so from that, the the electric cooperative was born. So North Carolina has 26 electric cooperatives across the state serving mainly rural and suburban members. And like I mentioned before, it's two and a half million North Carolinians. And so it, and and actually, I apologize. That's, that's the population of North Carolina. We serve about a, a little less than that, but still a significant amount of the state. And so what we do is we make sure that we can, that our cooperatives can continue to provide affordable, reliable, and safe energy to all of our members. And that's our, that's our core goal. And so obviously every year there's different bills that speak to those goals and there's different priorities we want to get across the finish line with the legislature. So these members... Are they all, do they have like boards? I mean, I'm guessing like they Absolutely. must be some higher level organization which controls all of these members, right? Absolutely. That's a great question. So each of the 26 cooperatives have a board of directors and those board members are elected by the co-op members. So anybody who gets a power bill from the co-ops has a vote for who they want to see seated on that board. And so those board members then direct the hiring of everybody at the cooperative, and then they direct the priorities of the statewide organization. And so that's how we are democratically controlled, and that's how we make sure that everything, all of our priorities are what the members want and what's best for the people we serve. Okay. So in your current job, let's say you walked into the door, what is it that you do? Let's say you log in, and then do you like schedule these meetings? And what is it, how does it differ when you're in session and when you're not in session? That's a great question. So say, for example, right now we're in session. Every day we track what is going on at the legislature, and there's certain bills that we track more closely because they have more of an impact on us and our members. And if it's something that we would like to see changed in the bill, then we we go to those legislators who are the bill sponsors or the committee chairs that the bill is going through, 
and we talk to them about it and we, we educate them about what needs to be changed so that it can better serve the members that it will affect. And in most cases, it's, it really is an education thing. Nothing is malicious. And so we try to educate them on why the change we're pushing for is going to be better than what's currently in the bill. And so that's part of it. The other part is making sure our members, our co-ops and their members are educated on what is going on at the legislature. And so we do weekly updates. We also do updates whenever a particularly important bill passes or has action taken on it at the legislature. So we want to make sure that we're not working just in a vacuum here in Raleigh, that our actions are approved and made aware by all the co-op members. And it's really not just state level either. We, we follow uh, congressional politics as well and making sure that our priorities there move forward. We have a national association that helps us out with that. And, and we take our, our marching orders, so to speak, from, from our members. And so with that, we, we also use them. We also ask for their input on certain, on certain important issues. Uh, for example, right now in Congress, there's uh, several COVID-19 related priorities we're, we're pushing for. And so we've asked co-op members and co-op employees to ask their member of Congress to include these priorities in any future COVID-19 relief bill. And it's just an example of us using the grassroots to, to advance a priority that's really going to come back and help them. And that's one of, I think, the most powerful things we have because we have members who, by and large, are extremely happy with the service they get from cooperatives, are happy to also send a message out on behalf of one of our priorities because they know it's, it's not just a, a corporate priority or some priority for somebody else. It's really something that's going to come back to impact them. And so when you're not in session, what is it that you guys do? When we're not in session, we like to make sure we have a head start on the upcoming year. We, we take stock of what happened the previous session, and then we look at what we need to get done the next year. And so we, we formulate our priority platform, and then we go through all the levels of approval internally and making sure that that's what everybody wants. And then we work on messaging. And we also work on meeting with legislators in the interim between sessions. Before any bill gets filed or anything gets rolling too far, uh, we want to meet with certain legislators and just talk to them. And many times they might have a priority they're looking to pass a bill on the next session and we want to see their insight on that. And many times, it's like I said before, us letting them know what our priorities are in advance so they can talk to us about this is possible, this might be a little bit harder, or this probably isn't going to work this year. And so that frankness in between sessions when they're not as ta taxed by all the different duties of being a legislator in session leads to a more open conversation and leads to a, a better outcome for everybody. So if someone's listening to this and then they are like fascinated about what you guys are doing here at the NC Electric Cooperatives, what kind of advice would you give them in terms of, let's say, if they want to be a part of whatever you guys are doing? I mean, mm -hmm. what, would it that, what is it that they should do so that way you guys are like, you know, okay, this person is contributing to whatever you guys are doing like a student or someone, right? So what is it that they Absolutely. should do? Absolutely. Yeah. And so that that's come up practically for us uh, several times over the last years, a uh, few years when we've hired interns. And and one of the best pieces of advice I'd say is is research your prospective employer before going in for any kind of interview, phone interview, whatever the case may be, because that's the best, most impressive thing. Because we've had some applicants who have come in and have had stellar resumes, but they're a little shaky about who we are and what we do. And so We've had other applicants who come in and they've also had impressive resumes, but they, right off the bat, they've been able to talk to us about our business model, people we serve, what we do, and our priorities. And that is impressive to us because wearing so many different hats and, and working on so many different things, it's nice to have somebody come in and be an asset right off the bat without having to teach them from the ground up. 
we love bringing everybody up to speed as much as possible, but it's nice when they already have a little bit of an understanding about the, the subject at hand. And so do you, you do have an internship program and how is it, let's say if someone is interested to apply, how could they do it? So right now we're still evaluating that going forward. We've had interns in the past up until this past spring. The, the COVID-19 situation, it's thrown a wrinkle into our normal processes. We're looking at how we can safely do that in the future, but I think that's definitely going to be an, an opportunity in the years to come for anybody who's interested in, a, in interning co-ops. I would say just keep an eye on, if you're at school, keep an eye on the school job listings. Excuse me, I know many companies, including us, make sure any job listings or, or internship opportunities are put on those job boards. Also, just keep an eye on DIN. Follow a, a wide variety of companies and people and see what's posted on there because that's also a way we get out with the we get the word out. We're always looking for motivated, driven people from a wide variety of walks of life. We like to have that variety on our team. You know, we found that wide variety of thought leads to better outcomes, that when everybody comes from the same background and has the same thinking, you don't think of everything all the time. So it's nice to have that, uh, that diversity of thought there. So one final question I had for you before I leave the platform open for your comments. How would you define, because it looks like your entire background has been more on the grassroots level than on the lobbying side of that. Would you agree? Absolutely. Okay. So how would you define successful grassroots specialist? I would say know your subject matter, know the people you're working for, and then work your butt off to further the priorities of the association or the group you're working for, and never put yourself above anyone. That's the lesson I've learned that especially in grassroots, you have to take everybody's input into consideration. And, and that's really how you get the best outcomes because working in a vacuum, whether it's from living just in one place or only working with one type of person, it, it really limit the, the ability you have to, to advance your priorities. And so I would say keep an open mind and work with everybody. I would also carry that forward into lobbying. One of the best lessons I've learned from working with Jay and before him, Katie, uh, Katie Thomas, the realtors, and is make sure that the legislators you're talking to know who you are representing. It's important to be good at what you do as a lobbyist, but it's also important that they know that you're representing many, many people back home who are following the legislators' actions and, and care about what gets done at the legislature. That was really insightful and really good pieces of advice, Paul. Can you just, I'm going to leave this open to you right now. You can either speak a few words about yourself or your organization. It's all on you. Absolutely. So I would say, like I said, it's it's been very rewarding having the opportunities I've had to legislate the realtors at the electric co-ops presently. And the one thing that's always good to see is an organization who cares about people it serves. And so it's it's been really successful the last few years seeing the co-ops really advocate for some good things. Federally, we've been able to, to get a lot of funding for community programs. Co-ops are then able to pass forward to the communities they serve. All the time, you'll see a lot of our co-op able to fund fire trucks for local fire department or local libraries for a school or various things that, that really grow the community and make it a better place to live. Last year, we passed a, uh, a bill that would hopefully, down the road, encourage more broadband, more high-quality broadband in rural parts of our state where it's sorely needed. Now, in the, you know, this quarantine, COVID-19 situation that we find ourselves in, we're finding more and more that without internet access, it's impossible to work, to learn. For a lot of people, get healthcare through telemedicine. So we're, we're hoping that that's a bridge that gets crossed by a bunch of different ways uh, here in the coming years. Thank you so much, Paul. I really do appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Your experience has 
hopefully help is going to help out a lot of students who want to get into internships and grassroots. And if they ever have to reach you, I'm going to put your Twitter or email address, whatever is the best way to reach you. And I hope that's fine. Absolutely. Happy okay. to do it. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, Deepak. Hope you enjoyed the episode with Paul Mott. Thanks so much for listening to the show and your words of encouragement. Take care and see you next time.